got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to please turn to the uh, Gospel of Luke, and we will get started today on a message called, What's the Point? And uh, sometimes we, we look at things and we just kind of ask that question, what was the point? Hopefully, you've never asked that question after leaving church on Sunday and after hearing me preach, and, but you may have, but uh, sometimes we just, we experience things or we hear someone and we're like, well, what's, what's, what's the point of all of this? Uh, what's really happening here? Why is this happening? How come this is happening or that? And, and we have those questions. One of the things that um, if you are uh, in, the, in the opportunity of selling a house, uh, we have what's a kind of a recent phenomenon, mainly. Uh, there's really nothing new under the sun, so I guess at least it happened a thousand years ago maybe. But today in this society, it's happening. It's called a bidding war. Have you ever heard of a bidding war? Whenever I get ready to sell my house, I want a bidding war. How about you, right? Now, if you're the buyer, I don't know, that's not really the great thing. But if you're the seller, it's amazing. And sometimes you look at you and just scratch your head and you're like, what's, what's really going on here? What's, what, what, what is the reason for this? But if you're selling, you don't really ask that. You're just saying, higher, 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 let's go, keep going. And uh, hopefully that, that is the, uh, the incident. And it goes to show, once again that the value of something is determined by both the seller and the buyer. The value is determined by the seller. In other words, they might say, I won't sell it for less than this. But they usually don't put a ceiling on it, right? Not if they're smart. But the buyer has a say-so in that. To say, I, I think this is worth more. I'm willing to pay more than what they're even asking. And worth is so connected to identity. When we look at a, a property or a house, we look at an object, car, and we go, well, what? It, my identity of that is going to determine what I think its value and its worth really is. And sometimes we look at ourselves in the mirror and we look at our own lives and we begin to assess a value on us. Now, we would never do that about anybody else. We would never look at anyone else and say they're more valuable or less valuable, right? Because we're all Christians. It's human nature. We move beyond that to truly try to look at people the way God does. I want to ask you a question. Do you look at yourself the way God looks at you? Do you assess your value based on what he thinks about you, the value that he has towards your life? Or are you looking at your mistakes and your shortcomings as I certainly have plenty? Don't talk to Lisa about those. Just talk to me about those. If I just look at my own weaknesses and shortcomings, all the mistakes that I've made, I begin to think, well, I'm not very valuable. And of course, if I do the other side of the coin and go, man, I've got this success and that success and this went great and that went great. And I can puff myself up and think I'm more, better, higher than. But what does God think about us? What is his opinion of our identity and our worth? So if we'll begin to see ourselves the way God sees us, then we'll have an accurate 
assessment of our value. Here in Luke chapter number six, it, uh, we're going to read the first 11 verses, and then we're going to talk about the Sabbath. We're going to talk about the healer, the hand, and the heart. Let's read in Luke chapter number six, verses one through 11. Let's read. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. And some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Let's take a break right here for a moment. First off, the Sabbath is the last day of the week. We would call it Saturday, but it's the last day of the week. And to Israel, it was a very important day because God had established the last day of the month to be called the Sabbath. And it's one of the Ten Commandments, of course, honor the Sabbath day. And he had a system where they would be able to rest on the Sabbath day. He did this coming out of their 400-year bondage and slavery to Egypt. And he said, guys, you had to work seven days a week. I tell you, here's what we're going to do. On the seventh day of the week, you're going to rest. And it is going to be a statute. It's going to be important that you rest. And he intended that to be a blessing. But there's this group in here called the Pharisees. They were, they were the religious people. They were the, the, the priests or teachers of the law. There was a whole category, and there were different sects of them. But they were, they were the people that were kind of in charge of the religious system. And so they told the people what the law of Moses said. The problem was is that they would add things to what God said. If God said, um, you know, you can only walk a certain distance on the Sabbath, they would say you can only walk that distance and you can only carry five pounds. That's just an example. But they would add to what God said. So that's kind of the setting. So here Jesus is going through the fields with his disciples, and they gather food. They process the food by rubbing it together. And then, of course, they eat what they have harvested and processed. And the Pharisees were none too happy about that. They had, obviously, they were bored and had nothing else better to do. But that's a whole nother sermon. Verse number three, let's keep reading. Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate it. He ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, notice the pause, then he makes this statement, then he says to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's keep reading. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Again, an additive from the Pharisees, you're not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. They were really bored to make such a ridiculous rule. But that's what they did. So they were going to see if he was going to heal on the Sabbath. Verse 8 says, but Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with a shriveled hand, get up. And stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. 
Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And he looked around at them all. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law were furious, began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. In 1992, in a community in Israel, a community of devout followers, Jewish people who followed the law of Moses as best as they knew, 1992, there was an apartment complex that caught on fire on the Sabbath day. And the people there were not allowed to use the phone on the Sabbath. They went to a priest and asked him if it would be okay if they used the phone to call the fire department. In the 30 minutes that the priest tried to make up his mind about what to do, he finally told them, yes, you can call the fire department. And at that time, this building was destroyed and the fire spread to two other apartments. When man gets in charge, whether it be Jewish people or Christian people, there's going to be trouble. When we follow God, we're going to be okay. See, in the Old Testament, way back when, they had these rules and regulations. But you know, there's always a way around rules and regulations, isn't there? They used to have a a, a rule that you couldn't tie a knot on the Sabbath. (laughs) You couldn't tie a knot, except a woman's girdle. So if you went to the well and you brought your bucket, but there was a rope hanging from the well, but no bucket, you couldn't tie the rope onto the bucket to lower it down to get water. Guess what they did? You guessed it. In comes the girdle. They would tie the girdle to the bucket, the girdle to the rope, and they let them. <laughs> Don't we get crazy and kind of weird when we make up rules that we call them God's rules, but they're really not. And I think God looks at that and he goes, guys, the the Sabbath was supposed to be a blessing and you've made it a bondage. It was supposed to be something where you could rest and relax and be rejuvenated and restored and and, and a greater level of joy and, and restoration in your relationships and spending time with your spouse and your children and your neighbors. It was just supposed to be a blessing And you guys have added so much stuff to it that you've made it into a bondage. And so people began to look at themselves as though, wow, God's putting all these rules and regulations on us. He must not trust us. He must not like us because this thing's a bondage. And the exact opposite of true, God is saying, I love you so much that I'm I'm instituting a day of rest for you that, that it will be legal, it will be right, it will be beneficial, it will be acceptable for you to rest and be restored, and yet man gets in and messes it up. In this, this same incident is also recorded in the gospel of Mark, chapter number three, and in that uh, version, what Mark says, just a little different than what Luke here writes, he said, Jesus said this, he said, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. Man doesn't serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath serves the man. That's really well said, isn't it? Man's not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for the man. 
Well, there are three things that I want to just point out right here. And at the end of our time together in the next about 15 minutes, we're going to have a time of prayer for people who maybe need healing in their bodies or healing in relationships. But we're going to have a specific time of prayer where I'm going to ask you uh, to step out from where you're at and come up front if you want prayer for healing. And so here's the three things we're going to talk about really quickly, and then we're going to go into time of prayer. First off is the healer. Jesus comes on this scene, and uh, the first Sabbath day, he's walking through. They're hungry. They eat, and they're criticized for it. Uh, I just want to give a word of encouragement, especially to the young people. No matter what you do, somebody's not going to like it. There'll be somebody out there that's going to criticize you, especially if you're in middle school. That's okay. Just keep going. You just keep doing what's right. It's going to be fine. Okay? Learn how to deal with people's criticism because if they criticize Jesus who was perfect, they'll certainly criticize you and me who are not perfect. But it's going to be okay. There's a healer. Jesus came to heal. He announced it very early on when he first started after his baptism and after the time in the wilderness. He says, the Son of Man has come to heal the Son of Man has come to save. The Son of Man has come to redeem. And so he's the healer on the scene trying to bring the grace of God. He has already started demonstrating his power of miracles, his teaching, his love for people, that he went to the weddings, he went to, to be with them where they're at. He wasn't up in some ivory tower saying, you got to come to me, but he went to them. He's demonstrating his grace over and over and over again. And what is the grace of God? We, we, we think it's so much different than the system that we're in because it really is. Think about the system that we are in. It's all about you do and then you get rewarded. You accomplish, you get blessed. You work hard, there's something comes back to you that's good. That's the system of the world that we, that we live in. I'm not saying it's a bad system. I, I think you should work to get paid. How many of you, that'd be a good idea, right? Okay, good. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. Okay. Let me just give you a picture of grace in the context of the system that we live in. Here's a picture of grace. Let's say that you own a company or you work for a company. It's a successful company. It's awesome. It's wonderful and great. But you need a worker. You need, you need to fill a position. And Position Finder hasn't gotten it. What are those names of all those companies that they have out there that they find you your right person? They haven't worked. So you decide, you know what, I'm going out onto the streets and I'm finding somebody to fill this position. You find a homeless person. All he has is the clothes on his back. He's got a backpack with some stuff in it. And you say, hey, listen, you want to work? He goes, yeah, man, I'll work. He said, all right, we've got a job. It's going to pay you $100,000 a year if you'll come over here and you'll work at my company. How about it? He goes, yeah. And you say, okay, what's your name? You write down his name, said $100,000, and you sign it, and you hand him a check for his full year salary before he's even started. Now, there are some people that would say thank you, and you'd never see him again, right? And that's why you don't do that. But I can't I tell you, that's what God does. He comes along and he says, I give you everything you need for life and godliness. 
I, I don't just give you a little bit of grace to, to get you to work for me, and then the more you work for me, the more grace I give you, and the more you work for me. The... That's not how it works. God comes along and says, I save you. And in that moment, I cause you to go from death to life, from blindness to sight. I cause you from being out of the family to being in the family. It's not a subclass of child of God. You're a child of God in that moment. He floods you with grace. And then he says, now listen, I want to make sure you understand. I just gave you all this grace and you can't work enough to earn it. You, you, you can't pay for it after you get it. It's a gift. Grace of God is a gift. And the reason why it's so difficult for us to understand that and grasp it and live in that is because we live in this system that says you work first and then you get paid. I like that system. But I like this system more, the one with God says, I just give you grace and I just, I just shower you with grace. So that there's no way you can earn salvation. You cannot earn God's favor. It is a gift. So why do we follow Christ? Why do we work for him and serve him and love him and, and, and make, make sacrifices? Why do we do that? It is because we have been given grace. It is because he has lavished us with grace. And he says, the identity that I see you is grace. That's your identity. That's our identity as Christians. It is an identity of grace, not works. We don't work for God to earn it on the back end. We're showered with grace. That's the healer. That's who Jesus is. That's his message. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, or else we would boast. He says, I give you grace. The second thing we see in this is the hand. We see a shriveled hand. You know, the, 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 the saying is, you know, knowledge is power. And, the, you know, sometimes we say what you don't know won't hurt you, right? Well, in this situation, I'd say what we don't know is going to help us. Let's look at this man. What do we know about this man? I can tell you we don't know more than we know. Here's some things we don't know about this man. We don't know how old he was. We, we, we don't know whether he had a really positive attitude, like, hey, okay, I got a bad hand, but I got a good hand, and I'm going to work hard, and we're going to be blessed, and it's going to be okay and awesome. He read, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People and Have Power of Positive Thinking. He read all those books. He's like, yeah, life's good. I just have one bad hand. Or did he have the attitude, oh, man, I'm never going to amount to anything. I got a withered hand. We don't know. Was he always in the synagogue? Was he there every time the doors were open? We don't know. Was he there because Jesus was there? We don't know. Was he married? Children, grandchildren, brothers, sisters, parents? We don't know. We don't know anything about the guy other than he was in the synagogue. And he did something he was told to do that he could do. And he did something he was told to do that he couldn't do. Jesus made one request. He said, uh, stand up and so everybody can see you. I'm assuming it was kind of a stand up and come up here thing. 
And he could do that. He had a withered hand. He could walk. He walked. He got up. And then all of a sudden, you know, Jesus makes this proclamation uh, to them. Hey, what's better to do on the Sabbath, good or bad? Evil, you know. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he could, the man couldn't do that. But he did. He stretched out his hand because God's power was on him. The grace of God was on him. And so he was able to do what he couldn't do because of God. Isn't that a great picture of us? What can we do for God that his grace is not mandatory? His grace is what we need. His grace lavished on us. His grace realized within our lives so that we realize when God tells us to do something that we cannot do, it is his grace working through us. And so God heals him. How many of us today have a withered hand? How many of us today have something about us that isn't quite working quite right? It might be a marriage. It might be a relationship with a child, a brother, sister, a neighbor. Maybe something in your physical body. There's an illness. There's a sickness. There's a withering that, that shriveled or withered. When you go back to the Greek, it really means a dried up. We don't, we don't know why it was dried. We don't know how long it was dried up. At this point, it doesn't matter. It's a matter of saying God told him to do something he couldn't do, but he did it because of the grace of God that was on him, which means this. God says, my grace is the lens I look through when I see you. And you can do what you can't do because the grace of God does it in you. You might be saying, well, my marriage is, uh, I mean, we're still married, but it's over. You can do what you can't do because it's the grace of God working in you. It's not by works, but it's by grace. So God comes along and he says, stretch out your hand. And what if, let's just go to the what if. What if the guy said, I can't? Now, I, we're not going to go down that rabbit trail, but the point of it is, is every one of us, starting with me, have probably heard the voice of God just say, hey, do this. And my first response is, you've got to be kidding. When this property in this building came available and there was this, we were trying to work these things out and I was going like, well, what's the mortgage on this thing? And what's the electric bill? And what's all, and we had no money in the church. We had no, Hope Crossings had very little money. And we looked at that and we said, really? <laughs> Could you have blessed us with a lot of money? And then we just walked into this going, yeah, let's go. Let's do this thing. He goes, no, I'm going to dwindle your finances down because you're supporting missions and you're supporting other people. And you do that first, and then I'll show you the blessing that I give you. We first, uh, first got into this. It was a mortgage of about, it was only about $250,000, which was wonderful and amazing. You know what it is today? It's less than $90,000. Can we say praise God for that? Amen? Yeah. That's what, the, that's what the mortgage is on this. Because God's grace is working in us. He gives us his grace. He says, I, I, I'm going to challenge you to do something you can't do so that you'll know it's my grace working in you. Some of you say, well, I didn't graduate from high school, so I can't. And God says, but my grace can. My grace can. Yeah, but you, you don't understand this relationship, this struggle. and So I can't. And God says, my grace can. My grace. My grace is more powerful than your works. 
My grace is more powerful than all of our works combined. God's grace is more powerful. That's the message that he sends us. He's saying, God is saying to us, his grace is more powerful than all of our works. It's his grace that we need. That hand can be healed. That marriage can be healed. That relationship can be healed. God demonstrates, Jesus demonstrates God's value that relationships are more important than rules. See, the rule is you work and then you get, but God has relationship that says, I give it to you and then you're free to work. Up until that point, we can't work because we're in bondage. He says, I'm going to set you free and give you grace so therefore you can live a life that's fulfilling, full of power and might. But the last thing is the heart. We got the healer, we got the hand, but we got the heart. What was the whole thing about the hand? It was to try and get to the heart. You see, God heals our lives and our difficulties and our struggles and, and our marriages. And, because why? Because he's trying to get to our heart. He gives us grace and he just, he just lavishes us with grace. Knowing he knows we're still going to struggle and have difficulties and we're going to be trying to figure this thing out. And God says, I'm lavishing you with grace because my grace is the only way you can figure it out. He heals the guy's hand because he's trying to get to the heart of the Pharisees and the givers of the law, or the, the, the teachers of the law. He says, I'm, I'm going to go to such an extent that I'm going to show you an outward miracle so that maybe you'll believe me for an inward miracle. It's all by grace. It's not earned. This man that got healed, what did he, what did he do to earn it? We don't know anything about the guy. All we know is he was in the synagogue, he stood up, he stretched out his hand, boom. All he did was do what Jesus said do, the grace working in him. Because Jesus is always aiming for the heart. The grace of God enters our hearts and then begins to change everything else about us. It's the grace of God that he consistently, consistently, consistently gives us. We live by his grace. We live in his grace. We don't live by works, but we live by grace. God always targets the heart. We serve. We follow out of gratitude. Lastly, this, grace replaces legalism with relationship. See, if you work your 40 hours or 50 or 60 or whatever, but your boss doesn't pay you, you have a legal right to go and get paid. You can take him to court or her to court or the business to court or whatever. You can go to court and get paid. It'll cost you your whole check to get the check. But anyway, that's another story. But see, in relationship, we have no bartering tools with God. We can't go, hey, do you see what I did? He's going to say, do you look at the cross? That's what I did. And the cross overrides anything and everything you could ever do. I mean, I don't think we should really be telling God, did you see what I did? He goes, yeah, I saw a lot of things you did. You want to talk about those? No, no, I'm okay, God. He says, grace. Grace. 
He says, my grace is going to cover up that stuff that you did so people don't find out about it. My grace, my grace. That's the plan of God, the grace of God working in our lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel. It is good news of grace. Grace. 